So chapter 6. These are the commandments, statutes, and ordinances that Yahweh your God instructed me to teach, so that you may carry them out in the land where you are headed, and that you may revere Yahweh, that's the fear of the Lord, your God, that you will keep all of his statutes and commandments that I am giving you, that you, your children, your grandchildren, all your lives to prolong your days. Pay attention, Israel, and be careful to do this so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in number. As Yahweh, God of your ancestors, said to you, you will have a land flowing with milk and honey. So once again, he keeps repeating over and over again, do this so go well for you. Do this in the fear of the Lord. Now remember, he says, so you may have a land flowing with milk and honey. We've seen that phrase in other books, but this is the first time it shows up in Deuteronomy. And remember the idea is, that the land flowing with milk and honey is milk and honey were extremely rare and sweet things. Right now, today, we have tons of sugar and chocolate. We have no idea what it's like to just have one or two or three things that are sweet in your entire life and existence. But back then, they had honey, which is the honey of bees. They also had honey, which is like the jam of figs um, that they would squeeze figs down, and that was also called honey. And then milk was incredibly sweet. And if you've ever grown up on a farm or had anything from a farm, milk from a cow, honey from raw honey is way sweeter than most things you can get in the grocery store. And so the idea is if they obeyed God, then God would bring the rains. The rains would make the crops and the vegetables and the um, fruits and the trees and the grain all grow so that there would be an abundance of bees and cows and goats and, all, and produce this kind of stuff. So what really is rare when everything is not good, when things are abundant, they'll become even more abundant. So if you only have a little bit of rain, a little bit of grass, you're not going to have that much honey and milk. But if you have tons of rain, which can only come from God, then you're going to have an abundance of this. And so the idea is that what God is basically saying is that I'm going to bring you to a land where every single person from the wealthiest to the poorest are all going to have caviar and $500 bottles of wine sitting on their shelf like it's nothing. I'm going to give you the abundance. The rarest and most expensive things that are hard to find are just going to be flowing abundantly like rivers in the land because that's how much I'm going to bless you. That's the idea that he's communicating. We come to the most important phrase in the entire Bible. So important that it becomes the basis for everything else. And this is called Deuteronomy 6.4, beginning in 6.4, going through 6.9, and this is known as the Great Shema. Now the word Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. This is why verse 4 begins with, Hear, O Israel, or some of your translations might have, listen, O Israel. The word Shema means not just to physically hear something, but to take that, make it a part of your life, and put it into practice actively in your life. So when God says listen or hear, he means make this phrase transform the way that you think and operate so that you live it actively out in your life. So what is supposed to transform us and affect every action that we do? 
Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And you must love Yahweh your God with all your mind, your, your, sorry, your heart, your soul, and all your strength. You must love Yahweh your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. This is what's known as the great Shema. The great hearing. The great put it into practice. The first thing that it clearly states is that the first concept that you must, and he'll go on later and say, bind this to your foreheads, your arms, and your doors. And we'll talk about that later. But the first concept that you must bind into your being is that Yahweh is your God and Yahweh is one. Now remember, God never denied the existence of other gods. Because right now, if you take this statement absolutely literally, this does not allow for the Trinity. And this is one of the verses that the, the, the First Testament Jews argue why Christianity is violating the great Shema. It says God is one. And we say God is three. And you're like, well, yeah, but technically he's still one because it's a Trinity. They're like, no, 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 that doesn't fly. It's still one. That's what he says. But that's not what he means here. Because he's not denying the existence of other gods. If he did say that there were no other gods, that would kind of cut half the Torah out where he spends all this time talking about not going after other gods. And we've already talked about that. What he's making it clear is notice that he starts off with not the proclamation that God is one. He starts with off with that Yahweh is your God. See, as an American, we would say God is one. We want to start with the technical definition and then how it applies. But God starts with the application. The application is God is your God. The only God that you're allowed to have is me. Because your God is one. That means that God is one is defined by that first statement. The only other time that we ever see the exact Hebrew phrase, something X variable is one, is in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. Say, where you have a variable like X is one. And so what Solomon is doing is Solomon is, this is the love letter to his wife or his bride. And in fact, a lot of people think that it might not even be Solomon. Um, but whoever the author is, he's writing this love letter, and there's, it's a back-and-forth exchange, and it's a very passionate, erotic-like love between the two of them. And he says this in verses, chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, Though there may be millions and many women in the world, for me, she is one. He's not saying she is the only woman in the entire world, literally. He's saying that even though there are millions of women, I only have eyes for her. So relationally, devotionally, loyalty, covenant loyalty, it's as if there's only one girl. And that's what God is saying. Though there may be millions of other gods and options out there and idols, the first and most important concept that you need to get down is, I am the only God for you. 
and I am one. See, what God is proclaiming is not a technical definition of monotheism, that there is only one God. In fact, the Bible acknowledges polytheism, that there are multiple gods. See, Christians truly are not monotheistic, believing that there is only one God. What Christians truly are, are monotheistic in their devotion, monotheistic in their loyalty. Just like I don't think that my wife is the only woman that exists, but she's the only one that exists for my devotion, my covenant loyalty. And that's the most important principle. It doesn't matter whether you get a technical definition that God is the only God down, your heart can still not be devoted to him. But what the great Shema is, is that I am the only one for you. I am the only one that your heart is to be devoted to. I am the only one that you're to have eyes for. I am the only one that you're to be in a covenant with. And that's the most, and that allows for the Trinity. That allows for the Trinity that will be later developed, even though it already exists. And so what God is communicating is devotion, faithfulness, loyalty. Because the very next thing he's going to go into is when you go in the land and all those gods are there and they're going to tempt you to worship them and go to them for grain and crops and that kind of stuff, remember I'm the only one who can provide this for you. Remember I'm the only one that ever did this for you. And that's what he's saying first and foremost. What does your relationship with this Yahweh look like? Now that God is clearly defined, I'm the only one you're to be in a covenant with, what does covenant love look like? So this is where he goes on and says, Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The word love comes from a Hebrew word, ahava. Ahava is basically a love that refers to care and affection. Ahava will later be translated into the Greek Bible as agape. And so what God is communicating is a love of care and affection. This isn't just, I love this movie. Okay, I love this backpack. That's just, I really like it. I enjoy it. I'm using it for my own gratification. It's not even a love of erotic love or a love of desire. Because that's, I want it. I'm using it. The word ahava is communicating a care and affection. Meaning a love where I value the thing that I'm loving. That I'm not, I don't love it in that it's an object to gratify me. I love it in that I value it, treasure it, take care of it. I show affection to it. I treat it as precious. It's a love that I give to. Now, a lot of our words, when we use the word love, it's more like, I desire it. I like it. It does something for me. But this is a love that I do something for it. I treasure it. I care for it. I'm affectionate towards it. Now, this is what basically God is saying. Yes, you are to fear me, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And I am the God of the universe. And you shall fall onto the ground and worship me in absolute reverence. However, I also want you to have a care and an affection for me. 
a relationship. And this is that tension. Remember who motivated us. At the very beginning of this law, in chapter 5, God says, I am Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and adopted you as my own. All the language of God's relation with us as a father to a son. I'm the one that first loved you. I'm the one that rescued you. I'm the one that brought you out. I'm the one that cleaned you up. I'm the one, in the, in the words of Jeremiah, you were the aborted baby on the side of the road, all bloody and dirtied and abandoned. And I came and I cleaned you up and I restored you. I clothed you in white clothing and I adopted you and I made you my firstborn son. That's love. That's care. That's affection. And so what God is saying is that same love of care and affection that I first demonstrated to you is the same love that I want you to return back to me. Why? Because I'm the first one that did it. You love because I first loved you this way. You are caring and affectionate because I first showed you what that looked like. Which means I don't want you to enter this covenant out of legalism or the need to obey or out of a fear of punishment. I want you to enter this covenant because you care for me and you have affection for me. That's the basis of this great Shema, is that God is saying, I want you to obey me and to have devotion to me and me alone because you actually care for me and you're affectionate for me. In the same way that we want any friendship, we don't want a wife or a husband or a friend to be loyal to us because they have to because it benefits them somehow, or they're scared to death of what we'll do to them. We want them because they actually care for us and they have affection for us. And that's what God is saying. 